Well, this weekend is our final week of messages on the letters to seven first century churches that are found in the book of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3 of that book. And I want to remind you that as we look at this this morning, there's three aspects of how we need to look at these letters and interpret them. First, they address Christ's statements to that specific church at that point in time. Second, they speak to the local church, this local church, as we seek to hear God's evaluation of new life in the present. And then third, they speak to each of us as individuals as we seek to listen for God's voice in our individual lives. So there's three aspects. The church in the first century, new life, and then us as individuals. And so I'd encourage you to keep that in mind as we look now at Revelation chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 14. And today we're going to look at the letter to the church at Laodicea. As you turn there, let me talk a bit about the debt crisis. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I've heard entirely enough. But I do want to talk about this for a minute. It was called the U.S. Gold Standard. And it actually was, became a worldwide standard for many, many years. What it was, was a monetary standard under which the basic unit of currency in the U.S. is equal in value to and exchangeable for a specified amount of gold. In other words, you would take your $10 bill and you could trade it in for a specified amount of gold. Well, that ended in 1971. And so now today... We print money that is backed by the U.S. Treasury. I don't know what that means. We print money not backed by any tangible standard. The idea of a gold standard is that there was something that was decided that it had value and the dollar was tied to that. Well, there could only be as many dollars as there was gold to back it up. Okay? Right now, though, and you've probably heard this on the news, there is no strong, firm basis for our currency. Well, that ties into what we're talking about today. Because this type of thing was happening at the church of Laodicea on a spiritual level. There was no strong, firm basis for their relationship with Christ. They were placing dependence not on Christ and His transforming work, But instead, they were completely self-confident and self-reliant, and I don't mean in a good way. In this passage, we're going to see that God's standard for a relationship with Him, His standard for what is valuable, His standard for truth, and His standard for transformation. It is God's gold standard. He actually, later in this passage, we'll see that He actually talks about gold and purchasing gold from Him. So let's look at this passage, and we're going to take it in pieces, dissect it a little bit, discover what Jesus is saying to the church. First, in verse 14, we see Jesus' authority. If you remember from the other letters, each letter begins with the statement to the angel of the church in, and then it gives the name of the city, and then Jesus gives a description of Himself. He does so in this passage also. Here's how this letter begins in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Let's look at this phrase, the Amen. 
What is Jesus saying about himself when he describes himself as the Amen? Well, it's a common biblical expression signifying certainty and veracity. According to 2 Corinthians 2.10, all the promises of God are fulfilled in one person, the person of Jesus Christ. That is, all of God's promises and unconditional covenants are guaranteed and affirmed by the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Literally, the word amen means so be it or yes. So Jesus is saying, I am the so be it. I am the yes. I am the certainty and the veracity of the promises of God. What I say you can bank on as true. I am the amen. Then he describes himself as the faithful and true witness. He's reiterating that he is completely trustworthy, perfectly accurate in his witness to the truth of God. He's the amen, the faithful and true witness. I will not lead you astray. I am the one who is faithful and true, who is the end and the beginning of all things. Then he says, I am the beginning of God's creation. Now Jesus writes these words to do two things. The first is to correct a heresy that had been going on in the church at Laodicea. It was also in the church at Colossae. And it was that Christ was a created being. That he was not an eternal part of the Godhead. And you can imagine what theological and practical implications that had in creating problems in the church at Laodicea if you don't believe that Christ is God himself that has existed for all eternity. What he's saying here is, and when he says he is the beginning, he means the beginner, the originator, the initiator of creation. He says he's the firstborn of creation, the most preeminent, the supreme person ever born. As a man, he had a beginning, but as God, he was the beginning. So Jesus sets up his authority as the amen, the yes, the so be it, the true and faithful witness, the beginning of all things, the one who created all things. Jesus says, I was there forever. I will always be here. I am the beginning, the middle, and the end of all things. This is the one who writes to you today. That is quite a business card. Well, before we look at what he says to the church of Laodicea, let's look at the city of Laodicea. We learn a lot when we discover what kind of environment, what the culture was of the city where this church resided. Laodicea was known for its industries. The first of which was banking. It was known as the center of wealth and power, kind of the financial district of New York City. That was Laodicea. A great banking industry there in that city. Second, they were known for manufacturing. Their most highly sought after manufacturing product was wool. It was a very special wool. Some commentators believe it was a special black wool that was produced there in Laodicea that was used all over the region. The third thing Laodicea was known for was their work in medicine. Specifically and most notably, they created an eye salve that worked to heal eye problems. Banking, manufacturing, and medicine was what this city was known for. This little 
all start to make sense in a few moments of why we're saying this. There was one problem, though. They were also known for their water supply or lack of it. Laodicea had no water supply of its own. So it would pump in its water from two cities near it. The city of Heropolis was seven miles to the north, and it was known for its hot springs that were used for healing. And it would pump water seven miles from the north into Laodicea from Heropolis. The city of Colossae, which was less than 10 miles to the south, was known for its cold waters that were pure and drinkable. And they would pump that in from the south. Well, Laodicea had the unfortunate circumstance of having neither hot water or cold water, so they pumped it in. And when trying to do this, when trying to pump the hot waters from Heropolis, the water ended up being lukewarm. Seven miles is a long way to pump water, especially in the first century. By the time it would get to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. And the cold water pumped in from Colossae By the time it got to Laodicea, it was dirty and impure and almost undrinkable. After the first celebration, a couple came up to me and they were visiting from Grand Rapids today. And he said, well, we were just, he's with Radio Radio Bible Class, and they were over on a tour. And their non-Christian guide, when they were touring this area, said, let me tell you something about Laodicea. It's got really bad water. You don't want to drink it. She said, they pump it in from these nearby cities. This is still today. They pump it in by the, from these nearby cities, and it's really kind of, kind of a tepid, lukewarm kind of water. You probably don't want to go near it. And, of course, they had light bulbs going off. So what was true in the first century is true in the 21st century. Yes, they had a banking system and manufacturing, and they were known for their medicine, but they had terrible, terrible water. And Jesus uses this piece of information that the people of Laodicea would understand completely to talk to them about what their problem was and what he wanted to say to them. And so in the next few verses, starting in verse 15, we see Jesus' indictment of the church. And see if you anything comes to mind as I read these words. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Have you figured out where Jesus is going with this? What's he say first? He says, I know your works. I know your works. You're not hot. You're not cold. You are lukewarm. You are tepid. Think about that water again. The water that people in Laodicea would have to be drinking every day. They were having to drink it and bathe in it and cook. Everything was done with this tepid, dirty, impure water. The picture Jesus is giving is that both These waters that came their way were useless and valueless. Hot water has use and value, and cold water has use and value. But these waters of Laodicea weren't 
useful or good or fit for healing or drinking. Jesus is trying to get them to start realizing that what you are investing in is not Christ, but the world. Your focus was, is not on the spiritual, but on the physical and the material. You're counting on these, these great industries you have, but let me remind you about your water supply. Now, in no way is Jesus saying that there is a spiritual advantage before God of being a completely rebellious sinner. He's not saying, well, that would be better. He's just saying, you guys have no idea what is really going on here. Let's continue with the context. He says, for you say. Now he's going to challenge them with what they say about themselves. What do they say? This is the church speaking. We are rich. We're prosperous. We're in need of nothing. I don't believe this is just a physical state. I think it can be a mental one. Where we say, I don't need anybody. I don't need anything else. I will control my life. Unless you think, lest you think that, well, it's just people who really are in control that are like this. I meet an awful lot of people whose lives are out of control that are still trying to control them. This is, what was happening is these people are saying, we got it. We're cool. We're fine. We got this figured out. They didn't even see their own lack of relationship with Jesus. And we know this because the next phrase that Jesus writes and speaks is not realizing. This is who you say you are. You say you're rich and prosperous and in need of nothing, but you don't realize that you are. And here's these harsh words. These words of indictment to the church. You are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. Jesus takes the industries and the water situation and uses them as a metaphor for what's going on spiritually in the church at Laodicea. He says you're wretched just like your water. Nobody wants to drink this water. You are poor. Yeah, you depend upon the banking in your city. You depend upon the great wealth, but you are really poor. Yeah, you think you got this medicine thing all worked out and you create this ISAB, but you are blind. And you put your stock in the fact that you manufacture this wool that makes clothing and yet you are naked. Yeah, you're self-sufficient, Jesus says to Laodicea, but you need water from elsewhere and it's not even good. You depend upon your wealth and your money, but you're poor. You produce eye salve, but you're blind. You produce wool, but you're naked. This is really the saddest part of the entire passage. Because here's what I think was happening. They did not even realize that they had gotten to the place where they thought they were just fine. I wonder if the people of the city of Laodicea got used to their water. They got used to drinking lukewarm, dirty water. They got used to doing all the the cleaning and the bathing with this tepid water. I wonder... 
And I wonder if the church, like the city, had gotten so used to their non-Christ-centered lives that they thought they were actually right with God. This is what we see in Matthew 25 in one of the most shocking passages, I believe, in all of the Bible. It's a picture of judgment. It's a picture that Jesus gives of two groups of people standing in judgment before God. And the first group of people he calls out are the sheep. Then he calls out the goats. He says to the sheep, he says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And the response of that group of people is, when did we do this? We don't, we don't even remember doing this. And what they're told is that they were so in the Spirit, that they worked so diligently in the power of the Spirit of God, that it was natural for them to serve and to live the Christian life. But they didn't even realize they were doing it. And he welcomes them into his presence. And then he turns to the other group and he says, I don't even know who you are. And what do they say to him? They say, well, but we did these things. We, we did all these good things in your name. They point to their works. They point to what they were doing. They point to all this stuff that they thought made them spiritual. And Jesus says, you didn't do it to me. You did it in your own power, not in the Spirit's power. You did it because it made you feel righteous rather than gaining your righteousness through me. This is where the people of Laodicea were. What was the difference? What was the difference in these two groups and what was going on in Laodicea? I believe that they were blind to the truth. They had settled for the lie that their own goodness and their dependency upon themselves, their attempts to do and do and do would please God. This is the issue in the church of Laodicea. And maybe it's the issue with some of us sitting listening today. This is a problem that we have to take care of immediately. Jesus writes this letter saying you need to do something about this. You're spiritually naked and you need clothing that Christ supplies. You're spiritually poor. You need the gold that Christ offers. You're spiritually blind. You need healing that only Christ can give. Consider this statement in verse 16. This makes me so sick that I will spit you out of my mouth. Literally, the word is vomit. Like, just like the dirty, tepid water of Laodicea that might make someone drinking it for the first time be sick, these self-deceived hypocrites sickened Christ. This is a very harsh statement. The church was neither cold. They weren't openly rejecting Christ, nor were they hot. They were not, they had no spiritual zeal. See, the difference between hot and cold is extreme, is it not? But this church wasn't either. They weren't openly rejecting Christ, but they had no spiritual zeal about them. Instead, its members were lukewarm hypocrites, professing to know Christ, but not truly belonging to Him. Now you, have, you may ask, is this church full of people who are actually unbelievers? Well, I tend to think that this is the case. And here's why. 
Is there really such a thing as a Christ follower who is not following Christ? Is there such a thing as a Christ follower who is not spirit, truly spirit-led? Whose real trust is in themselves rather than Jesus? These words I spit, this seeming rejection of sickening self-reliance are harsh. These don't seem to be the words that would be applied to God's children. But we'll talk about this a little later and you can decide if you agree with me. But Jesus doesn't stop here. He doesn't stop at this indictment as Jesus always does. He says, let me give you some counsel. Let me tell you how to deal with this. Let me tell you how to step into relationship with me. Verse 18, it says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus is offering them spiritual counterparts to their three major industries. You see it again? Each of these is a way that Jesus is saying, let me tell you about real salvation. Invest in gold. Sounds like banking. Don't count on your own riches and strength. It makes you poor when you can truly be rich in me and rich in the things of eternity. He says, invest in white garments. Hmm, they produce textiles. Don't depend upon your clothing of yourself. Apart from Christ's provision and the clothing of his salvation, you're naked. Invest in ISAV, mine, my medicine. Yeah, you produce your medicine for your eyes, but you're still blind to the things of God. You see, for all that Jesus offers us, there are always empty substitutes that we settle for. We grab hold of lies instead of the truth. The lies of these temporal things that they were putting their confidence in were just that. They were lies. Jesus is saying if you want to be truly rich, if you want to be free from shame, if you want to experience real healing, these can be found only in my salvation. Not in what you're putting your trust in. We're notorious as human beings for doing this, aren't we? This week, I thought about what we settle for. One thing I thought of as as I was talking with people this week is that while Christ offers us deep, ongoing joy through His Spirit, we settle for the offer of momentary happiness through our flesh. God wants to give us deep, ongoing joy. But we get caught up in the momentary happiness of now. This could be through money or sex or anger or addictions or self-sufficiency or lying or cutting corners, or gossip. Oh, I better stop. But it's all about control, isn't it? We will do it our way. 
when we want it, how we want it, and not God's way. But we'll seek to give off an air of spirituality the whole time. Even believing that we are right with God somehow. Paul even said, shall we sin that grace may abound? And his answer to himself is, absolutely not. The dependency of the church at Laodicea was the same as the dependency that their city and their culture had. It depended on themselves and what they could do and what they could produce. And the stuff that they had. Jesus is showing love as he gives this counsel. And he explains this great love that he shows for them in this offer in verses 19 through 21. And we see Jesus' love for them. Those whom I love, he says, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. We see love's reproof in verse 19. Jesus says, I reprove and discipline. Some versions say, I chasten. This refers to God's convicting and punishing of the unregenerate. Again, it could be that Jesus is speaking to a church full of people who claim to follow Christ, but in reality were hypocrites and spiritual fakes. In my opinion, that's likely, as I said. But even even if I'm wrong, and this is speaking about Christians who are not completely following Jesus, who had lost their spiritual way, the response that Jesus asks for is the same. This is the key issue. Jesus asks for this response. Zealous repentance. Be zealous and repent with everything you have. Believe the truth. Stop. Turn around and go in a new direction toward Jesus. Trusting in no one or anything else but Him for your transformation. Zealous repentance. In other words, not just repentance. Not just turning around and going, well, this would be a good idea. No, zealous repentance. In other words, I've got to do this now. I will do this with everything that is in me. I will turn and I will follow Jesus with everything I've got, putting full dependence in Him for my transformation. Love's reproof calls us to zealous repentance. We see here too love's desire. And I would challenge you that love's desire has a sound. Christ stands, notice where he stands, outside. Seeking to enter this church that bore his name. And he stands. And the sound of love's desire knocks. His desire, if you look carefully, is that someone, anyone, hear his voice and open 
the door. His desire is that someone within the church, one of these hypocritical fakes, would turn and answer love's desire. And what awaits them? Deep fellowship for the one who hears and answers Jesus' call. Then he gives love's promise. This promise to overcomers or all true believers is that they will share in the privilege and authority that Christ enjoys as they reign with him. You see, we have no right to rule. We don't deserve to sit in a place of privilege. And yet he shares his rule with those who devote all to him and those whom he has transformed. To those who have lived lives founded on his gold standard. And then he gives these final words. The same words that are at the end of every one of the seven letters. In verse 22, Jesus finishes these letters by saying this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you have spirit ears? Do you hear the voice of Jesus? What's the Spirit saying to you? If you are putting trust in anything or anyone other than Jesus, then I believe He would speak to you today. Whether you are yet to be, yet to be a believer or a Christian who has moved away from Him, He speaks to you today and says, Repent. Do it zealously and immediately and wholeheartedly. Repent. Stop moving in the direction you're going and turn back to me. He would say to you, I am the beginning and the middle and the end of your spiritual transformation. Don't put your trust any longer in you. And the glossy facade that you try to create of spirituality. But put it in me. For in me you can be be rich And you can be clothed in white. You can step into relationship with me and let me change you. You know, I wonder if the church at Laodicea on the outside probably looked pretty good, right? They may have just bought new chairs for their auditorium. Felt pretty good about themselves. Got a little more padding. They're a little wider for our expanding congregation. I wonder if they were getting ready to put nice new tile in the men's and women's bathrooms. I wonder if they were getting ready to have VBS. And we're real proud of it. Hey, I wonder if they were proud that, hey, maybe a couple people in the church were out in the community handing out the gospel pamphlets. I wonder if they were real proud that maybe, that, hey, maybe they did a mission trip every now and then. I wonder if a lot of the folks at Laodicea were in small groups. Real proud of themselves that they were going that extra step and taking a couple extra hours a week 
I wonder. Whatever it was, Jesus said, you're not hot or cold. You're like these waters that you're pumping in from these cities, and when it gets to you, it's just gross. It's disgusting. It's undrinkable. And yet you've become used to it. And I wonder how many of us today have settled in and we've just become used to what our Christian life is about. And Jesus would say to us today, repent. Repent. Stop depending on all this stuff that you think is making you spiritual and depend completely on me. You see, we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, not the gospel of U.S. citizens and not the gospel of our culture and not the gospel of our society or our city. We seek to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we can only be saved through that gospel. And Jesus would say to us today, as a church and individuals, zealously repent. Drink the water that I have for you clean and it's pure and it transforms your life let's bow our heads together father we're grateful for passages like this that challenge us we thank you that your message to these churches is a message to us and i pray that we would have ears to hear God, do we hear the voice of Jesus today? Will we listen to what the Spirit is saying to us? Father, I'd ask that your Spirit would settle in on this place and open ears. May we hear your Spirit speak to us. I'm going to ask that each of us do something that I believe will put us in a posture to really listen. And so if you are physical, phys- physically able, I'm going to ask that we all just turn and use our chairs as altars, that we kneel before this God who offers us a relationship with Him, who wants us to zealously repent. And here's what I want us to ask. What do you have to say to me, God? What are you saying to me? Give me ears to hear. And then, what's the response? Say yes. Whatever the Spirit says, say yes. If it's get up and go to the lobby and make a phone call and deal with a relationship, then say yes. If it's to make a huge turnaround in some area of sin in your life, then say yes. If it's for the first time to give God your life entirely, because he is calling you to himself and say yes. So church, let's go to our knees and listen to the Spirit.